Good evening. Good to see everyone tonight. It is a few minutes past time to get started. We were having a little bit of trouble back there with the PowerPoint and uh, getting it to synchronize and all that good stuff, but I think that we've got it up now. So let's begin with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll uh, pick up in Acts chapter 11. Shall we pray? Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, for the church that meets here at Willow Avenue. Our Father, we pray that you will bless this congregation as we seek to serve you in all that we do. We pray that you'll give us wisdom and strength to let our light shine to the world around us, that we will be diligent in teaching lost souls, that they will not be lost eternally, uh, nor will we. Our Father, we ask that you'll be with us through our class tonight as we study the book of Acts, the book of conversions. Above all things, we thank thee for your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of Acts. In fact, I told you that we were going to update the memory list because we had only gone one through chapter 10. Let me see, since I've got this here. Yeah, okay, how about this? We can actually zoom in here. So when we go to chapter 11, chapter 10 is the Gentiles begin. Chapter 11 is the Gentiles can go to heaven. And then 12 through 15, we're going to have a little bit different approach. Chapter 12, of course, is a rhyme. And I've got, this gets challenging. So if you think they're lame, sometimes the lamer, the easier to remember. That's what I have figured out over the years. So chapter 12, Herod exalts himself. And what we're going to get in chapter 12, Herod's going to exalt himself in two ways. Number one, he's going to kill James. Number two, He's going to arrest Peter. So you've got those two things. In fact, I guess we could go on. He's going to exalt himself in another way, and that is he's going to give a speech, which uh, the people begin to say, oh, it's a god, and he just eats it up, and then he's eaten up. Chapter 13, I called this son not seen. Chapter 13, the son is not seen, and that's because there's going to be a false teacher named Elymas, and Paul is going to strike him blind, and he will not see the sun for a season. Fourteen is for them. Fourteen for them. Now, what this is going to relate to is Paul and Barnabas are going to be seen as gods, and that is the people, the Gentiles are going to bring gifts for them. So if you can rem remember that, fourteen is for them, and fifteen is a similar sound, and that is fifth equals diff. Now, why is that? Because there's going to be a great difference. There's going to be a dissension that takes place between Paul and Barnabas. Fifth is diff, and we'll talk about that more when we get there, and that will get us through the first 15 uh, chapters. Okay, in Acts chapter 11, it begins, of course, with Peter returning to Jerusalem. He is defending to the other apostles and the Jews why he baptized Cornelius, and he rehearses all the events going back to Caesarea. Then the text skips ahead to Antioch. The church, the Lord's church, has been established in Antioch. It is the first major thriving Gentile congregation. And so what's going to happen is the apostles send Barnabas from Jerusalem. Here's our, our little map here. And uh, since I can zoom in here... You can see the apostles down here in Judea, you see Jerusalem, and they're going to send Barnabas up to Antioch. 
and he's going to work with the church there for a while. And eventually, he's going to leave Antioch, and you see the arrow going to the top, and he's going to go to Tarsus looking for the Apostle Paul so that he can come back, lay hands on people there, and add additional spiritual gifts. Meanwhile, the church in Jerusalem is also going to send prophets from Jerusalem up to Antioch. Now, why is all this going on? The church at Antioch is thriving. It is a Gentile hub, and so they're sending prophets to Antioch. They're going to get an apostle. He's going to come to Antioch, and we're going to see the church in Antioch is going to end up being the hub of Christianity pretty much for the rest of the New Testament, or at least through the end of the book of Acts. Now, last week, we talked about a key verse in the book of Acts, Acts 11.26. What happened first in Antioch? Okay, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and we talked about the fact that this was a name that God assigned, and we went back to Isaiah chapter 62 to look at that. All right, now we're going to notice beginning in verse number... 27, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Did I have somebody to read tonight? Was there someone picked out with a mic? Nope? Okay, well, I'll read. In verse number 27, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's what we see. We talked about the spiritual gifts that were available at that time, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There were nine different gifts of the Holy Spirit. When someone received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the first century, they would receive at least one of these gifts. The apostles apparently had all of these gifts. I broke it down and put all nine of them in a list here so that you can see it. And then specifically, we talked about them, and the one that's highlighted here is the gift of prophecy. A person who had this gift of the Holy Spirit, they could speak on behalf of God. God would give them a message and they would be able to reveal it. It might have been about the past. It might have been about the message of the New Testament. It could be something relating to the future. He was speaking for God. What we read in verse 27 is prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. What are prophets? It's people that had this gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, now verse number 28. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So one of these prophets who came to, from Jerusalem, he's at the Antioch Church of Christ, and he stands up and it says he showed by the Spirit, that is, he had this miraculous gift, the Holy Spirit, and he told them, prophesying, that there was a famine that was going to come. And he said it was going to happen during the days that Claudius Caesar was reigning. Verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling at Judea. Now let me back up here. If you look at the map here and you see Antioch, Antioch is the first, what kind of church? It's the first major Gentile church. Now, when you go back to the church in Jerusalem, what is it? It's primarily, in fact, for years now, it has been a Jewish-only church. 
And so Agabus goes from Jerusalem, he goes up to Antioch, and the Holy Spirit reveals a message to him that a great famine is coming. And the text here says that the brethren in Antioch, who are Gentiles, determined that they're going to send financial relief to the brethren in Judea, in Jerusalem. How about that gesture? Now you've got this Gentile church that is sending financial relief to support the Jewish brethren. This is a major, major thing because it wasn't long ago. In fact, there's still a struggle that's going on where they hate each other. At least the Jews really hate the Gentiles, but now they're brethren. Now they're Christians. And so these Gentiles find out there's going to be a famine, and they said, we need to take up a collection. Let's take some money and send it so we can help the Jewish brethren there. Isn't that amazing what Christianity will do? how it will change the hearts of people. And it says something about what Christians should want to do to help each other. All right? Any comments or questions? All right? Verse number 30, this they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, this is interesting. It means in Antioch, the Gentiles took up a collection, and they're going to send it down to Jerusalem to the elders. Why did they send it to the elders? Why didn't they just go back and distribute the money as needed? Okay, the elders have the oversight. This is telling us something about authority of elders. Elders are overseeing the funds, and so the money comes to that area, what do they do? They find men who are qualified, who are leaders in God's church, who meet the qualifications of elders, and they oversee the funds. We learn a lesson. There's a principle there about the giving of the church today. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, when we lay by and store on the first day of the week and we donate it to the church, it goes into the hands, uh, the oversight of the elders to make decision about it. Every now and then, we have had someone who will call the Gospel Broadcasting Network and they will say something like this. I've decided that I just want to start sending my weekly contribution straight to GBN instead of giving it to the local congregation. What do you think about that? Is that scriptural? No. You see here, we'll see it again over in, I think it's Acts 14 off the top of my head. Don't quote me on that. But in Acts 14, what we're going to see is the money is being brought. Now, earlier in Acts chapter 2, before their elders in the church, they brought money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Now we're seeing they bring it to the elders. Later, it's going to be to the elders. When people have called GBN and said, we want to start sending our contribution directly to GBN, there's a temptation to want to say, yeah, do that. That's a great idea. <laughs> but what I've said to them is, uh, brother, I appreciate that. If you've got money that you would like to send above and beyond your normal contribution, we would be thrilled for you to do that. But the biblical precedent is that you need to give the money to the local congregation and let the elders make distribution of that. Now, usually the answer we've gotten back is something like this. Well, I don't have confidence in my local eldership. I just don't think that they're handling money properly or, or whatever, to which I've responded, then that's something you need to work out with them or you need to move congregations. 
because you don't need to just decide on your own that I'm going to do this and I'm going to send it elsewhere. But we actually have had that come up often. It comes up quite often. So it makes me wonder how often this takes place, but it doesn't follow the precedent that you see in the New Testament. It makes me wonder how often other works might say, sure, do that. That's, that's a great thing, but we don't believe that's a scriptural thing, and you've got to stand by what is right, even, even when it comes to money, right? Especially when it comes to money. All right, now let's go to chapter 12. Now, about that time, what time is this? When all this relief is going on, this benevolence is going on, about that, so you've got goodwill going on between the Gentiles and the Jews. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Now, here is my question for you. Which Herod is this? How many Herods are there in the Bible? Okay. What's that? Somebody said a whole bunch of them. It depends on who all you want to include in this exactly, because there are four prominent ones that are mentioned. But then you've got other members of the Herod family that are there as well. I looked this up today and started trying to put together a chart, and there's a whole bunch of Herods. Now, Herod is this family name. I want you to look at this family tree. Can you see it very well there? Ah, yeah, that's a little bit challenging to see. Let me see if I can zoom in here since I've got this. Um, at the top, you've got Herod the Great, and he's the guy I've got circled in green here. What do you remember about Herod the Great? He starts this timeline. Okay, that is right. I hid it so you couldn't see it, but he is the one that built the temple that you read about. This was something he did to try to please the Jews. He also was the one that was killing all the babies because he was scared that he had heard about Jesus. And remember, the wise men came, and he said, tell me when you find him. I want to worship him. And so they said, sure, we'll tell you. But then an angel told them, don't, go back another way. That's this guy. Now, we're going to see about his family here. Let me show you some others. If you look down at the red circle here in the middle, this is Herod Antipas. And you see the, well, in fact, let me zoom out just a little bit. He had a bunch of wives. In fact, you see the, I can't get this to be still, uh, the five. One, two, three, four, five. That's a few of his wives. He had a bunch that I don't have on this chart. But... These are a few of the wives that relate to individuals that are mentioned in the Bible. And then you can see the children that they had. If you look at the one in red here and the one in purple off to the right, these would be two of his sons. They would be, what would they be, stepbrothers or half-brothers, I guess. The one in red is Herod Antipas, and the one in purple is Herod Philip. Do you notice coming down from Herod Philip, there's a dotted red line? And coming down from Herod Antipas, there's a dotted red line? And then we've got this woman here who I put a uh, purple square around her. Anybody have an idea who she is? How would these two guys be linked to this woman? 
They both married the same woman. That's right. This is Herodias. Where do you know the name Herodias? What did she do? All right, that's right. Herodias is the one who dances, and she ends up asking for the head of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually going to stand in the presence of this man in red, Herod Antipas. And he is going to say, you are in an unscriptural marriage, because what does he tell him? Whose wife did he say you have? He said, you have your brother Philip's wife. The Philip, the one in purple over here, this is Philip. And so she was married first to Philip. She did not have a scriptural divorce from Philip. And yet, then Herod Antipas, his half-brother, steals away his wife. See what a mess this family is? How would you like to be in this family? And so he steals the half-brother. He takes his wife. Well, then John the Baptist is in the presence of Herod Antipas, and he says, You've got the, you're in an unscriptural marriage. This is not right. And then Herodias dances for Antipas here. What's that? Yes, in fact, if you look over, do you see um, the purple square? I wish I could put a dot or something on. Yeah, look at that. How about that? I'm learning all kinds of stuff tonight. Do you see this? This says Salome. Who was Salome? Um, Herodias is the one who danced. Salome is her mother. And so what happens is, we're, we're getting way off track here tonight, but um, <laughs> what happens here, um, this, the family tree, this is, uh, what's that service you can go get your family tree? Ancestry.com. We're doing Ancestry.com tonight. So what we've got here, Herodias dances in the presence of Herod Antipas, and the indication of the Bible, in fact, the wording is he's sexually aroused by this to the point that he says, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, you name it, what do you want? She then goes to Salome, and she asks her mother, she says, what would you, what, what can I do? What should I ask for? And she is mad because of this unscriptural marriage. And so she says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. And so Herodias goes back and tells Herod Antipas, I want the head of John the Baptist. And Herod Antipas ends up being the one who kills John the Baptist. So this is part of that family. Now, if you look a little bit further here, you've got over here in yellow, in fact, here's Herod the Great. Here is one of his wives. And by this wife, you can see we trace down, what, one, two generations, and you have Herod Agrippa. What do you know about Herod Agrippa in the New Testament? Yes, he is the Agrippa from Acts chapter 26. In fact, I, I put little arrows here. He is going to be the one who kills James, and he arrests Peter. And so he's the one that we're going to talk about tonight. He kills James, and he arrests Peter. And then if you look down here at his son, let's see here, there we go. 
This is his son down here. This is Herod Agrippa II. He is the one that Paul is going to stand before later. And when he gets through talking to him, this Herod Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. And so, how about this family? And then I, I threw some others in here just for kicks. If you look here at uh, the bottom woman in the pink, this is Drusilla. Drusilla is the sister of Herod Agrippa II, who says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. She is married to Felix. You see them down here? Who is Felix? Felix is the governor. And you might remember when you get to Acts, I think it's 26, that Philip, or a Peter, I'm getting all mixed up here. Paul is in the presence of Agrippa, and Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Well, when Agrippa gets done with him, he says, I don't know what to do with this guy, and he sends him to Felix. Why does he do that? There's a relationship. Herod, his sister, is Drusilla, and Drusilla is married to Felix. And so he sends him to his brother-in-law. And then, do you remember what happens with Felix? Paul is going to stand in the presence of Felix, and the Bible says that he reasons with him of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. And what does Felix say? I will hear you again at a convenient season. That is, when I have a convenient time, I'll hear for you again. And the Bible says he called for him often. There's no indication he ever obeyed the gospel, but he does call for him often. So how about this family? Can you imagine the Herod family in the first... I haven't even begun to tell you some of these stories, but as we go into the Herods more, um, several of the Herods kill their own children for the sake of trying to protect their family line and their lineage. They change mates and they change partners and they kill each other, and this is a disaster of a family. And we start with the one who wanted to kill Jesus, and then we go to the one who kills John the Baptist who Jesus said, amongst those born of women, there is not one greater than John the Baptist. He said he was the greatest man who ever lived. And so we've got the Son of God, tried to be killed by Herod. Then we've got the greatest man who ever lived, the forerunner of Jesus, is killed by a Herod. Then you've got Herod Agrippa I, who kills the apostle James. He intends to kill the apostle Peter. And then... We've got uh, the rest, which I'll stop here. We'll get to some more later. But I wanted to share with you all the family tree of the Herods because this gets confusing because you keep hearing Herod, Herod, Herod. And I'll refer back to this as we go through it. So, all right, Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Which Herod is this? This is Herod Agrippa I. Verse 2 says, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Eusebius, who is an, a historian, Eusebius says he beheaded him. The Bible doesn't say how he beheaded him. Eusebius says a lot of things that are very credible, and so it seems to be the case. Now, according to Jewish law, there was only two reasons that you could behead a person. One was idolatry and the other was murder. Had James committed either one of those? No, of course not. 
But the Herods didn't care a bit about law, so it didn't matter. They did what they wanted to do. Um, I want you to notice this also. Let's see here. Here is another. I found this uh, online. I won't go through it again, but this relates to the, um, the Herods in the New Testament and who did what. And if you want it, I'll share it with you, but it's an interesting breakdown here. This goes back to Mark 10 and verse 35. Prior to this, when Jesus was still alive, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How about that question? James and John came to Jesus and said, We want to ask something of you, and we want you to agree to do it before we even ask. And, of course, Jesus doesn't do that. But, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. They're still thinking an earthly kingdom. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said unto them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. You know what Jesus is talking about? They came and they said, Lord, we want to ask you something, but we want you to grant it before we even ask. And he said, what do you want to ask? And they said, when you establish your kingdom, we want to be on the right hand and the left hand. See, they're thinking earthly glory. And Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized, that is, immersed into what I'm going to be immersed? Remember, the word baptize is a generic word. What Jesus is asking is, are you able to suffer the suffering that I'm going to go through? They don't know what they're saying, but they said, oh, yes, Lord, we're able. And he said, indeed, you're going to. What does he mean? They are going to suffer. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be put to death. And he says, so are you. He was prophesying their death. Why am I bringing that up here? Because of Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, then James, the brother of John, is killed with the sword. It goes back to what Jesus said was going to happen. All right, verse number 3, Acts 12 and verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, this is interesting because here, all the Herods are just politicians. They're trying to please the Jews, and so he arrests James, and he kills him. And then he sees that the Jews, they hated the apostles. Wow. He saw that they, they hated the apostles, and so when he killed them, they really liked it. And so he said, he sent his cronies, and he said, uh, go ahead and arrest Peter also. He's going he's gonna to kill Peter also. Josephus wrote that Agrippa was very ambitious to please the people. He's a politician. He just wants to please the people. He's gonna, he killed one apostle, and he saw that they liked it. He's going to kill another apostle. Can you believe that a politician would commit murder for political gain? <laughs> Who said that? We're going to study lying next week. So I could tell by your tone of voice that you didn't mean that. So um, you think that still happens today? We'd be naive to think this doesn't still happen today. I'm not pointing fingers or alluding to anything except to say this still happens today. 
It might get covered up a little more today, but he did it. Everybody knew it. He saw that they liked it, and he said, arrest Peter. Why didn't he kill Peter immediately? Well, if you look, it says, now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. What does that mean? Seven days prior to the Passover was a period they called the days of the unleavened bread, and so this was part of the feast period, and Herod was one that he liked to purport that he meticulously kept the traditions of the Jews. Why? He wanted to be on their good side. And so probably what this is alluding to is he said, go ahead and arrest Peter, but that's the days of the unleavened bread. I'm not going to kill him, so just keep him in jail because i got to make it look like I'm not going to violate the days of the unleavened bread. Verse 12 says, and so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep in, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. Now, there's several things in verse 4. It says that they put him in four squad, delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Based on some of the manuscripts, it carries with it the idea that this is probably what happened. They put him in the inner prison, and there were four guards guarding him at all times and three-hour shifts, and then four more guards, three-hour shifts. Four more guards. Why would they change guards every three hours? To make sure they're fresh. Make sure these guards... And do you think that they assigned four guards to every prisoner? you think every prisoner in the jail had four guards surrounding them? No. Why would Peter have four guards? You remember back in chapter 5 and verse 19, they put Peter in prison. What did they find out? Next day, he's out preaching again. No one knew how it happened. I think this time they said, we're putting him in the inner prison. We're going to have a, a guard on each side, and he's going to have to go through two more guards to get out, and at least two, maybe three gates to get out. What were they saying? He ain't getting out this time. That's what's happening here. It says he put him in prison intending to keep him until after chapter 12 and verse 4. If you've got the King James, what does it say? It says, that's King James says, after Easter. He was going to keep him after Easter. I have no idea why they translated that as Easter. I'm sure I could go back and look up the history of it. But there is no doctrinal evidence for this. This is the Greek word for Passover. The King James is the only version that translates it as Easter. Jimmy? Oh, really? Okay. I did not know that. Okay. So they fixed a number of them except this one. This is not the word Easter. I was preaching in a church in West Virginia on one occasion, and I had used the New King James Version in the gospel meeting. And afterwards, uh, a brother walked out, and he said, that was a great sermon. He said, but what was that version you were reading from? And I said it was the New King James. And he said, oh, I knew it was one of those strange versions. <laughs> and I said, um, one of those strange versions? And he said, yeah, we use the King James here. And I said, <clears throat> I said, why? And he said, because, you know, God guided the guidance and writing of the King James Version. And I said, 
you know, there's mistakes in the King James Version. And he said, no, there's not. And I said, well, uh, one example would be in Acts chapter 12, where the word Easter is in there. I said, do you believe that Easter is a God-given, sanctioned holiday from God? He said, if it's in the King James, it is. And I was really taken back. But I found out there's a large section in West Virginia that are King James only. And periodically, you'll meet people who are King James only. And so it's good. From When I run across folks like that, I try to be respectful. Use the King James and fight that fight at some other time. And um, don't just be um, ornery for the sake of being ornery. But, uh, but they're wrong about that. that. That is a mistaken thing. But... That's one of the glaring things about the King James. It's the only English version I know of that has the word Easter. Okay, we'll put a peg down at verse number 5, and we'll pick up there next week. Thanks.